Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, you found the portal. I'm your host, Eric Weinstein, and today we're here with a uh, fabulous author who many of you will know, Brett Easton Ellis, famous from Less Than Zero and American Psycho, and now the book White. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Eric. So I don't know exactly uh, how to approach this, but one of the one of the frames that I have is that we're sitting here in a very unusual city that many people don't understand how important it is and what makes it so unusual. And one way I might frame that is that because Los Angeles is the home of the entertainment industry, there's a weird way in which this is the only city in the world in which I could make the argument that everyone some, somehow partially lives here, whether they know it or not. They've consumed the street scenes, which are used as backdrops for movies and TV, and they have an idea of what the ethos of the place is, which sort of seeps into the screenwriter's uh, mindsets, no matter who they are, and in any way that LA is different, it does broadcast itself to the world. Does that resonate with you? And can you add anything? Well, I think it it maybe resonated that way for me, maybe ten or fifteen years ago, a lot more. Uh, I think uh, the entertainment industry is not centralized just to Los Angeles anymore, or at least that's the way we look at entertainment. Uh, it seems to be this kind of global thing and not wholly concentrated in Los Angeles where it used to be. Though now you you might have to uh, say that it is because Disney is the entertainment business. Disney now owns everything. That's the conglomerate that is going to produce an inordinate amount of content for the rest of the world. So maybe it actually has come back here and is centered here. Um, but, you know, it, it's strange. There are so uh, the entertainment business or the notion of the entertainment business is now this global thing, whether it's China, whether it's India has a massive, has the biggest entertainment uh, complex in the world, the, the the highest grossing movies. I mean, the biggest, you know. Um, sure, but that's a different, the consumer base for uh, Bollywood Right. is very different. So if you're in Indonesia, for example, or if you're in East Africa, you'd be much more likely to run into somebody. I mean, famously, uh, Raj Kapoor and you know some of his songs are known to, by all Russians. Right. But that hasn't had the same impact, I think. I mean, I think you could take the biggest films like a Sholay and people in the U.S. have never even heard of it. They haven't. That's correct. Um, but uh, I think it's because uh, L.A. has been so central in our minds to the entertainment business since its inception, I guess, in the 20s or, or, or before that, that we uh, that's where all of our associations are. They're all. But when we think about the movie industry, when we think about the entertainment industry, that it's just been around for so long that we always think that L.A. Uh, we, we connect L.A. with that. Um, and I also think that it's um, um, it has a lot to do with uh, the way L.A. looks as a kind of uh, 
para- paradise, a kind of Edenic, Eden-like um, uh, uh, location. Um, and of course, we've seen so much of it in so much of our, of the content we've consumed over the years. We've seen its roads, we've seen its hillsides, we've seen its beaches, we've seen its deserts. Um, that I, that that might be one reason why we're uh, we we connect LA with the business of entertainment. Well, I mean, I think you, you, just to riff off what you're saying, if I just thought about street names, you know, why is it that uh, Mulholland shows up in Tom Petty's Free Fallen, or is the title? Uh, of a famous David Lynch film, you know, Sunset Boulevard, all of these streets, you know, only New York might have in some sense uh, as iconic street names, which are sort of projected out through the industry. So that's one indicator to me that, um, you know, if I I thought about streets in Houston, I have no idea what the name of of important streets in Houston might be. No, uh, nor do I. Um, Yeah, I mean, well, look, so much of the talent um, that creates uh, this content, of course, lives here, uh, and <clears throat> they reference everything about the place in their work. And you know, look, I have to say, as someone who grew up out here and someone who has written about this in about three of my novels, were wholly, wholly set in Los Angeles. Um, it is the most. Um, creatively suggestive place that I've ever lived. And I've lived in New York and I've lived in Vermont and I've lived in Virginia and I've spent a long time in England and in Paris. Nothing really compares to Los Angeles in terms of how it's activated my mind and made me want to write. Um, and uh, I still feel that way. I've always, I felt that way since I was a teenager. There's a sense of possibilities and a sense of freedom here because of the constant mobility and especially the freedom I associated with being a young person in LA and having access, if I wanted to, to be at the beach and then an hour later be at the mountains and maybe an hour and a half later be at the desert, that this whole thing was so available to me and I had the mobility to um, get to all these places and that activated a kind of freedom in my mind that wasn't only physical, but it was also creative. And it's very hard to explain that to people. I mean, um, when I talk to writers that I knew who grew up in New York or grew up in the suburbs, um, I don't know if they really uh, can access that. And I uh, I think about that a lot. It seems to me that in, somehow, in some ways, um, that huge number of different environments really defines the place. And because LA doesn't have in what I consider to be a good general description in the world, we don't think about it the way we think about Paris, for example, or, you know, even New York, uh, people very often don't realize that this is like, you know, the home of, uh, in, in part of the Rand corporation or that there's an oil field that partially defines the city. It's not a very easy to understand place. And I thought that in part, um, you know, just as you're talking about the natural environments of Los Angeles, also the ability to go back and forth between Skid Row and Sunset Strip and to see the sort of ways in which um, the, you know, the illusion of, of the Hollywood Hills and the dark underbelly make this place just far more generative and, you know, dark. Uh, it's one of these places that, that fits the um, description, a sunny place for shady people. 
Well, that's what I uh, thought about a lot when I was growing up out here in the 70s and particularly in the early 80s um, uh, when, uh, for example, Venice is a is a good place to start. I mean, Venice in the 70s was um, slum, dark, very dark place. You didn't go to Venice after night. Uh, you didn't even go to Venice during the day. Um, but I remember they started opening a few restaurants there. There were a few art galleries. Uh, I remember 72 Market Street was one of the first, very first restaurants, uh, a very upscale kind of piano bar restaurant in a kind of derelict alley. And there was something kind of very Los Angeles about that, very thrilling, right off the beach. And um, and Los Angeles really does have the kind of imagination that allows that to open there and then flourish into other restaurants began opening. I remember Wolfgang Puck opened Chinois on, on I think, Main Street. And then everything kind of started to flower out of that. But that was not unusual because I remember a lot of times there would be, especially as a club kid and going to a lot of clubs, you go to these really cool chic clubs in the sleaziest parts of downtown in the the lower, lower reaches of Wilshire Boulevard. And um, there was just something kind of fabulous about an environment that allowed all of this to kind of coexist. And, uh, you know, Melrose, for example, was a place, a strip that I spent a lot of my adolescence on. And there were very high-end stores next to, you know, discount clothing stores next to vintage sunglasses stores next to the seediest bar imaginable. And the fact that all of this could coexist, coexist on a right. block was really thrilling to me. And, you know, it just didn't exist anywhere else that I've lived uh, in the world. And it's something that I still appreciate uh, about the city. Though, of course, L.A., I think like all places now, to a degree, and I don't want to gr grossly generalize about it, but, you know, we're sitting here in um, Hollywood, basically, uh, in a newish high rise. And all around us is massive construction. Yeah. There are high rises going up all around Coanga, all around Cole, uh, right by the Arclight Theater here. And Sunset Boulevard, the Sunset Boulevard from my childhood is kind of gone and has become a corridor not unlike some of the canyons of Manhattan, not unlike the Wilshire Corridor in a lot of ways. There is massive expansion and massive building here. And also done on that, on that kind of global style free uh, zone that is so popular wherever you go now around the world where you'll, I mean, I know they just redid, um, well, a few years ago, they redid uh, the Bel Air Hotel's restaurant and bar which was one of the more fabulous enclaves here. Uh, very mysterious. You'd walk through a forest over uh, a pond where there were, I guess they were ducks or geese, swans. They were swans. And then you'd enter into this mysterious, uh, dark, dark bar from out of the 30s and a very kind of charming, conservative dining room. Um, very, very old school. And when they, re when they did the resign, uh, redesign, it basically looked like any airport restaurant in Finland wow. or in in London or wherever. It just there, something's happening, and as someone who tours a lot, uh, I see it all over the place. It's kind of global 
style right. is taking over. And the and, and the restaurant and the bar at the Bel Air uh, now resemble pretty much everywhere else, as does, if we're talking about this, uh, Spago in Beverly Hills, which Wolfgang Puck recently felt he had to re- redesign in the same anonymous global style, you know, uh, kind of already black and white photographs, um, uh, these futuristic like tiki torches. I don't know. Um, so the L.A. that I think you and I are referencing and that you can still find in pockets around here um, is like everywhere else, it seems, uh, kind of fading into the new generic global style. And in a way, I sort of agree with this. However, uh, I've been coming here um, visiting in hotels and there are ways in which the old weirdness of L.A. keeps sort of, you know, like like the rose in Spanish Harlem popping through the concretes. That sort of dark underbelly does uh, recur. So I was just, for example, at this, um, is it the Saddleback Ranch, which uh, has a, a mechanical bull on Sunset Strip. Right. And I was at a table and a lovely looking young woman says, you know, do you mind if I sit down? I sort of thought that was odd. I was eating alone. She's like really quite complimentary, very friendly. I just turned to her and I said, are, are you a working girl? And she says, yes. How would you like to go back to the, to, to, you know, the hotel? And I said, why are you doing this? And she turned to me and she said, well, I just got my real estate license, but unfortunately this month is a little slow. And I just thought, well, that's a conversation that's not so easy to have anywhere in the world. No, it's not. And it reminds me a lot of Hollywood and it reminds me a lot of <clears throat> a lot of actors uh, that I met out here when I was <clears throat> casting a couple of big projects. Um, yeah, that is very much an L.A. thing, this sort of gay for pay hookup culture right that is kind of big among actors out here in terms of they you know the bartending gig didn't work out they're auditioning tomorrow they you know they really need some cash and um yeah la operates but la has always operated that way i wrote a novel about it in less than zero there is um uh ways that kids can make uh pay back their drug dealers and one of them is prostituting themselves. And I had heard stories when I was at Buckley about a couple of uh, brothers I knew who, if not exactly having sex with uh, older men, were, you know, a little teasy. Maybe they'd strip. Maybe they'd put on a little bit of a show. Not necessarily have sex with. But there's always been this kind of gray area between sex, money, well, also class, there, classlessness. You know, also I was uh, talking to a very big mogul, huge mogul, uh, and I was in a conversation uh, at a cocktail party, and someone asked me, uh, "Where do you think the best-looking people are?" And I said, "Well, I think I was thinking Italy, Sweden," and then this mogul who was over listening said, "Uh-uh, it's L.A., Los Angeles." This person's very intelligent, has very good taste, insanely wealthy. And I thought about it, and I now believe that's true. So this intersection of money, sex, whoring is, it almost feels like an 
inevitable thing. And I've written about this twice, and, I, and I'm just re- kind of realizing this now or remembering this right now in this moment, not that I, you know, I, I, I don't think about this all the time, is that both of the narratives of my two L.A. novels, Less Than Zero, and then uh, 25 years later, I wrote a sequel uh, to it called Imperial Bedrooms, where we kind of figure out where everyone's landed after they were 18. Both center around the, this, the central metaphor of prostitution in a way and that and beauty and money and that these were the things that seemed so suggestive to me about L.A. I don't know. Means what? It, it, it ties back into the entertainment industry. It ties back into exploitation right. and exploiting beauty and youth and a certain kind of. Uh, handsomeness if you're a man and a certain kind of beauty if you're a woman and that also being for so many people um, their uh, their calling card uh, it, it's what they really depend on I remember talking to a very good-looking actor and uh, someone that made a joke about oh it's not gonna be fun to see you get old and it, just in this bro and he was devastated absolutely devastated completely and that um I don't know. That kind of mentality um, really becomes uh, the emotional basis for the town in so many ways. So it's not it's not strange that that happens because there is that that intersection of, you know, beauty, money, exploitation is just, you know, it lends itself. It lends itself to noir. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. L.A. really does, in some sense, live its noir at a level that would be fictional somewhere else. I mean, I think about... so. There's this very strange coincidence that you and I came from essentially the exact same milieu. We both graduated high school in 1982. Yes. We were both at in the same sort of private school milieu. Yes. I believe that we knew people in common, although I've forgotten who they who they might be. And I very much had the sense that when Less Than Zero debuted, that you had privatized my childhood and that it was this <laughs> it was this period which if somebody hadn't written about it would never be believed and it the reason i'm trying to get at this i guess is that i think it had an importance that we didn't understand while we were living through it so i wanted to try some theories with you because i think that you are in some sense the poet laureate of whatever this firmament was, um, <laughs> which is sort of Los Angeles Gen X. And then I'll tie it back, if, if, if successful, to, um, to what I think its significance is for us now, because I, don't, I think it's underrated um, as, as a sort of a point of departure with the past. So I guess what my theory is, is that um, if you look out at this backdrop behind, behind us, imagine a neutron bomb went off which was the divorce bomb. 
Mm-hmm. And it started with no fault divorce in 1970 with Ronald Reagan, who himself was divorced, signing this thing into law. And if you look at a graph of div- like divorce rates per, um, you know, whatever, a thousand women, it's got this weird sort of, it's declining, 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 and it just skyrockets for the entire 1970s before it starts to go into decline again. And we lived through this. Yes. And while well, I'm asking... Do you remember that suddenly like everybody's parents were on the rocks, that suddenly the parents disappeared, that there were like children supposedly of privilege roaming the streets and that it was really dark? Well, that's a lot. Um, Am I misremembering? No, no. Certainly remember um, a lot of divorces. Uh, becoming much more aware of them as I entered into junior high school. Uh, My parents' marriage was very strained by the time I was 15, and I realized that they were going to split. Uh, My sisters and I were, however, relieved because there was so much tension in the house caused by numerous things, including my father's alcoholism. Uh, so that was the, the the divorce wasn't the problem. The marriage was the problem. Okay. So that was so I the the darkness, and I have to say, as a teenager, um, I wished that I had, and I did to a degree, enjoy this milieu much more than I did. But I was an alienated kid, and I was haunted. Uh, one of the reasons I was so alienated was I was gay, which was very, even living in liberal Los Angeles in 1980, 81, even when it seemed gayness was in the culture and announcing itself in specific ways with whether it was David Bowie or Prince or uh, American Gigolo or Calvin Klein advertisements, you still weren't out as a teenager. And so that alienates you and you begin to see the world in a slightly darker place. Or I think you begin to see the world as it really is. You see through the facade of it. Um, uh, you see through kind of the poses everyone is making in order to get through. And you, you really see the lie of high school in so many ways when you're gay and you're standing on the sideline and no song is about you and no movie is about you and you have to kind of reprocess everything. So that was a bit of the darkness of my uh, LA experience. Divorce, sure, um, but um, I think that for me it was it was uh, being gay and being a writer. I didn't know anyone else that was writing a novel. I'd written one already when I was thirteen or fourteen, and those two things really did separate me from the rest of the crowd. Um, it's not to say that I didn't participate. I went to parties. I even had a girlfriend. Um, I went to the beach. I had my group of close male friends. I danced at parties. You I knew went to you were clubs. gay at, at what point? Always or six, six, got it, seven, yeah. Um, and it was nothing that ever uh, I a- ever agonized over. It was something I just kind of accepted and said, "Okay, this is another thing that I've got to deal with. How am I going to navigate through this?" And it really was never something that tortured me, or I felt I had to like tell other people or come out to anybody. So I had a very even keel acceptance of that. Um, but it does separate you. You are only 4% of the population. There isn't a large pool of, you know, of other people like that. Um, so that was, that was my burden in a way, but, um, uh, and I also did 
there there was a kind of darkness in L.A. in the late 70s and into the early 80s. I felt it. I saw it in music. I saw it as a kind of it was minimalism and it was a kind of numbness that was being explored in a lot of the art and a lot of the music, uh, certainly in part of the punk scene and in the new wave scene. Um, but it was a numbness that had a feeling as well. It was numbness as a oh, feeling. This is beautiful. And I completely, that to me was what influenced less than zero. This notion that numbness was a feeling and that numbness was something that you could um, enter into and, and play with and try to express in some ways. And that was where I was at in my late teenage years in LA. That was what was on my mind all the time. And that's what influenced the style and the tone of Lesson Zero, if that makes any sense. Well, this is the weird thing about it. I've never heard anyone say this. Numbness is home to me. Like there is a weird way. Uh, I found myself driving the Ventura freeway uh, after college and I had gone to some party that hadn't quite worked out and was unclear what the address was and whether somebody's was squatting in somebody else's like had all of these weird characteristics and the emptiness just washed over me. And I think Tom Petty was playing on the, on the radio and I just felt I'm totally numb. I'm completely alienated and I feel completely home. That is what I felt. But I do think that might be very specific to our generation. I think our generation is weirdly the key to a lot of what we see going on in general, but because our generation is also invisible and because this place had very different characteristics, I do see it that there's a little bit, you know, the, the portal theme here has to do with trying to figure out how do we get out of the, all of these mysteries that we're trapped within. And culturally, in, in part, my belief is that L.A. pushed out a lot of this kind of nihilism to the world. Um, it couldn't easily travel. And so you we were talking about music before. I remember being very uh, cued into this band X. Yes. And X, I thought, was going to be huge. It was a huge too. mistake on my part. Oh, mine too. And how could it not be? They were witty. They had these weird harmonies, I think, that happened in fourths mm -hmm. between John Doe and Exene. Billy Zoom. Billy Zoom was DJ the guitarist, well, the, the, the drummer. Yeah. But the, so do you remember the song, uh, their big hit regionally was the song Johnny Hit and Run Pauline? Of course I do. Off the Los Angeles LP. Right. Now, this song, do you remember the, like, the lyrics of how it goes? Um, vaguely. you got to remind me. You bought me. a sterilized hypo, right. shoot a sex machine. Drink. It's about serial rape. He's right. got to rape 24 women in 24 hours, and the last one wouldn't cooperate. I mean, this thing is so off. It's so dark. It's so completely wrong. And it felt normal for Los Angeles at the time. Yeah. And it was like this massive miscalculation that, first of all, no-fault divorce hadn't happened nationwide. Like New York, it doesn't happen until a really late. Right. And so there was something about this period that um, was highly regional, but also was being broadcast everywhere, uh, even in kind of cryptic ways. And I think that your book 
probably less than zero probably looked kind of like wildly, weirdly exaggerated to the outside world. I don't think it was that exaggerated. Uh, Well, look, certainly there were things in it that I wanted to do as a writer. I certainly did not see a 12 year old girl get gang raped, which happens near the end of the book and where it's treated as just as natural as stubbing your toe or something to come across something like that. And isn't there something about where people are hanging out with a corpse? I mean, well now that was based on something (sighs) that I had heard. You're kidding me. There, there, and there was a story going around that there had been this person who'd OD'd in an alley. Mm. Uh, I think somewhere along Melrose, uh, this rumor went around in 1981, 82, and that kids just were brought to see the body of another kid. And people uh, had heard about it and someone would meet someone at a party. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Because, of course, remember, there was no cell phones then. And then people would come over, find the space, and just gawk at this dead body. Um, and that is a scene in Lesson Zero. But um, overall, I really did try to make it seem as realistic as possible uh, and almost as if it was journalism, almost as if it was reportage, that Clay, the narrator of the book, uh, was really um, describing the world he was a part of but not necessarily describing what his emotions were and all of the things he was feeling during that time. You understood that he was very detached and alienated because he never talked about himself. And he just described what his friends would say. He just described what he would see, what he would be seeing. And I think part of why the book works for people is that this voice never varies as the book gets darker, darker and more violent and nightmarish in a way and so there you know i guess that's what i was aiming for when i was writing it to find that kind of accumulation um of power by resisting hyperbole and then describing everything in a very flat minimal way and of course writers in the past had done this but transposing that into a contemporary teenager living in a big city uh, was something that I hadn't seen before. Teenagers in who were narrating novels were usually very emotional. Uh, look, going back to um, the, the few that there were, whether you were going to Judy Bloom or whether you were going back to the granddaddy of them all, the Catcher in the Rye, right. uh, I wanted to do kind of the anti-Catcher in the Rye in that way. But I think I drifted away from your question, which was kind of about, I, I mean, first of all, getting back to X, they were a part of the reason that they didn't fully work as a band was that they didn't have hits. They kept each subsequent studio album from uh, uh, Los Angeles to, I guess, uh, Adult Toys. Yeah. To uh, Under the Big Black Sun. Uh, right. And then I think it was 
the Ain't Love Grand was their stab at MTV, kind of a commercial record. I left the story then. After Under the Big Black Sun. Yeah. I thought that was my favorite of the of the th- of their three records that had been, even more so than Los Angeles. I, uh, there's, there, you could see that the songwriting was kind of moving away from the uh, really kind of rough uh, speed rock of Los Angeles and entering into a kind of more thoughtful kind of songwriting. But for for whatever reason, they never really broke. And uh, I think I think that um, they were a huge influence on Less Than Zero. One of the epigraphs in Less Than Zero is from X. So I was obviously thinking about them, but I was also thinking about Led Zeppelin because Led Zeppelin is also the other epigraph in Less Than Zero. But exaggerated, I don't know. Look, I, as I said to you earlier, I really ran with that story I uh, heard. And I also knew parts of from a couple of boys who were living on their own, actually, in Beverly Hills, who were not staying out of Malibu with their their divorced dad, couldn't deal with them. And they got an apartment in town as 17-year-olds, or the father had rented it for them. And I often wondered how they had such nice clothes, how they were able to go to this place or that right. place. And it was interesting because, uh, look, at that, they knew a guy named Ronnie Le- Levine who was murdered by Joe Hunt of the Billionaire's Boys Club. Uh, is it Levine or Levin? Ron Le- Levin. It was Levin, right? Ron I mean, Levin. This, this, I should know this. This was my high school. And so I got to know Ron Levin through these kids. We were all 16. And I remember, this just goes to sh- give you an idea of what my adolescence was like. Uh, we would congregate because we all had cars at Ron Levin's and have drinks in Ron Levin's living room. And uh, then Ron Levin would pour us all into his convertible Rolls Royce. And we would all, he would drive us to Flippers, which was a roller rink uh, kind of bar disco that's on the corner of La Cienega and uh, Santa Monica Boulevard that is now a CVS. We would, this, and by the way, this is a weeknight. This is a school night. And so we would go with Ron to his booth. Ron must have been, I guess, 48, 47 maybe. And he was gay, very definitely gay. And he would have six 16-year-old boys sitting with him at a booth. Flippers was all ages, by the way. There were a couple of clubs around town that were all ages. You didn't need to be 18 to get into some of these well, clubs. This is a, I mean, just to, to shortstop <laughs> it, I left this town when I was 16. Uh-huh. And when I think about all of the stories that I had in clubs and bars, I, they have to be 16 and earlier. And it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, look, I guess the drinking age was 18 in L.A., it didn't move to 21 until I think the mid 80s. It was always, look, I got into, I when I was 16 in LA, I got in everywhere. I got into bars. I was ordered drinks. Uh, I could get into the whiskey on a weeknight. Um, I, I never, and all my friends did too. I never remember having any problems with getting carded or uh, anything, anything along those lines. Right, like somebody would always know somebody. It, the place was totally fluid and the, 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 the I mean, I want you to keep keep oh, with well, the Levin no, story. I mean, I'm sorry about to short look, There's nothing else about the Levin story. It's just it gives you an idea. And maybe there was a little cocaine involved. But that just gives you – and that must have been 1980, 1981. That kind of just gives you an idea. And all, and all nobody was damaged. 
None of us were triggered. None of us felt we had to go to the police. None of everyone just felt. Okay, but true. But how many funerals did you go to back in the day? I have to tell you, I didn't. No, I didn't go to any. Okay. I didn't. I mean, look, I mean, compared to now in terms of. Or emergency rooms. I mean, maybe funerals wasn't that much, but there were, there were, this was not cheap. It wasn't that everybody was fine at the end of it. No, but I do think comparatively, there was a kind of Gen X resiliency That's, and strength. Which is what I want to get to. Of course. Okay, but I do, I, I think there is, and I think that. We were not wimps. Let's just, let's just put it that way. You know, I, sure, I knew people. You know, you have to understand drug problems. They, I, we didn't really know what that was in 1981 or 82. I didn't have friends who had outsized drug problems. And I really never heard of rehab. Well, people were doing amazing quantities of drugs and then going off to Yale and Princeton and Stanford. Of course, or, or UCLA, where a lot of them went. But, um, you know, the notion that no one believed you could get addicted to cocaine in 1982. No one really believed that. Look, I don't know if I've ever known anyone who's been addicted to cocaine either. But back in high school, look – the other thing that I got to say is that, and by the way, the Levin story is finished. That's I just want to okay, set the good, scene. Good, good, right. Nothing else. Well, ultimately, what happened? Ron Levin got murdered by Joe Hunt, which is a whole other story. But but, um, but, but, but we, I don't want to lead over that. We've just had tw- uh, Quentin Tarantino release Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's the story leading up to the Manson murders, where with an alternate ending. Yes, and I guess for me, I, I was thinking back to this very. Um, I don't know whether Joan Didion's writings move you, but they've uh, moved me a great deal. She was uh, perhaps the biggest influence on Lesson Zero and my writing. Okay. So when I read, I think it's the White Album, where she's talking about how the the, the 60s ends spiritually with the murders on Cielo Drive. And she, you know, she writes with this just exquisite prose, and it's so... It's so perfect for this in a city that thinks about earthquakes and, and Canyon fires. She says, you know, that the rumors spread like wildfires in in the Hollywood Hills or something like this. It's just dripping with this gorgeous analogy. And I thought about that. And then I thought about how, how that gives way to the seventies and the seventies is this period. It's like the golden age of serial killers. Yes. uh, and then you, you end up with like this very weird concept of privilege, which is one of the reasons that the millennials concept of privilege absolutely doesn't work for me, where you have like these very privileged schools and you have a murderous club of investors who somehow the kids are just not happy with their station in life. And, you know, there are these schemes maybe to kill parents and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> You you get the Menendez brothers and I get the feeling that her feeling is, is that things ended with the murders on Cielo drive and, and our story is like just getting started in some weird way that the Um, sixties versus the seventies is a big shift because the sixties had this horror and idealism fused together. Yes. And the seventies that the sort of the idealism just drops out, but the horror keeps going. Yes. I think you said something about that's very interesting about um, living here 
I, maybe you didn't say it. Maybe I'm um, taking what you said and well, moving it somewhere else. Um, about how I think me and my peers were very aware that we were living in a in a particular time that was a kind of movie. And that was youth culture uh, of the early 80s really seemed to be centered in L.A. You saw it in all of the movies from Fast Times to Valley Girl to the music that was being made to the Go-Go's being thrown out there. Um, there. There was this sense that we were at the red hot center of youth culture in Los Angeles in, say, 1982. Certainly, look, less than some echo of like Jim Carroll on the opposite coast. I guess so, but there was something more interestingly contradicting about Los Angeles. Right. There was something, you know, the darkness and the beach and whatever. I yeah. mean, it was this yin yang thing, and so um, very being very aware of that, of course, adds um, I don't know a kind of artificiality about the way you interacted with people and the way you behave. Now I'm saying this not on a completely literal level. I'm right. saying this just an overall sense of a costume, your car, the decor of a nightclub that you would walk into and be very aware that, you know, this was the place, just the, the staginess. This really goes back to what you first talked about LA as this stage, this movie set, Sunset Boulevard, uh, cruising around, uh, Mulholland Drive, going up to Mulholland to get high. The beach, the beach, such a huge part of your Southern California childhood. Um, but that's also not to say, and to, to move it out for a little bit, you said this about the East Coast. I felt that time for the East Coast wasn't necessarily the late 70s. Comes I, I think it comes in. Well, for me, I felt I was never more in a movie than I was during the yuppie years of the late 80s in New York, right before the crash, 1987. And that, to me, and, and even afterwards, the crash didn't really change or alter the way New York operated. But 87, 88, 89, Manhattan, to me, was something as evocative as the Roaring Twenties or the Swinging Sixties of London. You were very aware. When was Gordon Gecko? 87. Okay. So you're moving with the party. You see, for, for my trajectory was I, I, I'm in the same firmament with you in Los Angeles. Then I go to college on the East Coast. And suddenly it occurs to me that the East Coast has not gone through this. They are having, right. like, people are getting drunk on cold duck for the first time. And I'm thinking that's so cute. Right. Um, <laughs> because we were getting drunk on cold duck in ninth grade. But anyway, I mean, I mean. Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't conscious of wanting to chase the scene, but I, I don't know how you felt, but I felt growing up here, which really now in retrospect was kind of glorious. Growing up as a teenager oh, here in L.A. is like kidding. fantastic. It was the worst thing ever. This is well, so interesting. Look, you're a writer, so you're able to do something. Well, look, I wrote Less Than Zero, which yeah. is a complete- No, no, that of, was it. Kind of. Yes. But there there is also, I mean, I got to tell you- uh, Eric, that so many people who read Less Than Zero, so many kids loved it because they wanted to move here. They wanted to be part of That's that scene. That's a weird thing. It was, they thought it, it was, was so It was cool. cool. And it wasn't supposed to be in some weird way. Well, but it, but be, when you have death and sex and money, 
people react and respond mimetically, even if it's the most unhealthy thing in the world. <laughs> that's the, well, that's here, the late seventies. Here we are in the, in the late seventies and into the early eighties. But, um, I, uh, I lo- completely lost my train of thought. We were oh, talking sorry. about, um, uh, oh yes. I mean, lesson zero was dark. There was darkness around my, the, the years that led up to me writing it. But I also, when I was living here, I, I know what I wanted to say, but it, it, it had to do with the fact that in so many ways, I feel that we were lucky to grow up out here. Yes, it had its disadvantages and its darkness. But looking back, I mean, there there were things about it that I loved. And maybe I loved them at 17 and 18, and you missed those two years of the massive freedom that one would have. You weren't living out here in 17 and 18, where you graduated at 16 and then you went off or did you stay here? No, no, I was, uh, I was, I, I was 16 turned 17 in Philadelphia. Okay. And then I was in Boston. And okay. what I found was that, I mean, just to be, to be honest yes. about it, I, I've stayed away from the city really for 37 years because I just thought it was the blackest, darkest, most seductive <laughs> hellhole. Um, which it is. It which it is. Be. Which it, it is, be. and it can be. And it was generative. I mean, and so so that 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 notion of repulsion and fascination and home and total alienation, it's been impossible to talk about um, because it's all these things that usually come bundled. Uh, you know, like home and support and and meaning and that bundling didn't happen. And yeah. what I start, you know, if I think about the title of this film that you probably remember, the decline of Western civilization about like Darby crash and the cramps and the germs, and all that kind of stuff that seemed like overblown. And in many ways, I actually think, well, whatever the thing is that is unraveling the American tapestry was really present and visible early here and that and where I'm going to try to get to and see if you're willing and if you're if you're not that's fine too um one of the things that people may know me for is coining this phrase or pushing it out the intellectual dark web which people don't I've never heard with all the commentary and almost all the commentary on the, on the IDW is bad commentary because it's the commentariat trying to figure out who are these people without union cards and why are they commenting on the world? So they, they're always trying to figure out some way of getting rid of this thing. It was very much two things. It's an LA phenomena to a, a, an extent that nobody has understood. And it's a Gen X phenomena to an extent too. because Gen X is invisible to both boomers and millennials. Millennials think that Gen X is the boomer. They do. They do. And the idea that there is this in-between generation that's not large enough to chant things and to vote things into reality, but is extremely generative, very robust and has this completely, I don't know how to say it. You couldn't pick um, two more different circumstances. Eitan Patz gets kidnapped in New York, I guess, in 1979. And the milk carton kids start up. And suddenly, almost overnight, all the kids who were used to playing in the streets with no adults in sight are brought indoors and things really change. And somehow the millennials are brought up in that world, whereas 
as far as I can remember, I, I play back so many scenes from the seventies and I can't see grownups. The moms in particular yeah. are absent. Maybe the dads have been absent a long time, Yeah, but like the moms are somewhere else. But where were they? Because m- I would say most of my friends' mothers didn't work. So where were they? Were they up in their bedrooms? Were they out having lunch with their friends? Um, do you, I, well, do you remember? I mean, I remember some moms, but uh, sometimes some moms. mom was getting high with the kids. I remember that was a particular mom. There were moms who were looking for Mr. Goodbar. Yeah. There were moms who were trying to find some self-actualization and that the women's movement True. promised maybe there's some new thing to do, but everybody was hard, having a hard time finding what that was. Right. I think getting back to one thing you said before we move on to that is that um, the real darkness for me uh, had to do with um, the Manson family Hmm. and the Manson family haunted my childhood and my adolescence and still haunts my notion of Los Angeles. So if I had to choose something that I fixated on and honestly became obsessed by were the Tate LaBianca murders and the Manson family. And that book that Vincent Bugliosi wrote about the case of Helter Skelter was kind of like a strange Bible for me. And it became a kind of a, a dark touchstone. Um, yes, there, there, I still saw, and I was still in a group of people who were trying to have fun when I was in adolescence in LA and especially when we were free with our cars and basically free from our parents and had that kind of, um, uh, sense of, I don't know, ascendancy or being able to go anywhere we, we wanted to, um, it, it erased some of the darkness. I mean, I, I, there, there was a lot of opportunity to have fun out here. Um, but I also have to say, and this I think connects more with what uh, in a way, what your trajectory was, I wanted to get out. Mm. I did not want to stay here. Oh, so you, okay. I wanted to get out. And I knew at 14, I wanted to get out. And I had to wait for the plan to happen because when I was 18, boom, I was going to go as far away from here as possible. I did ultimately feel, I think, what you felt. I felt like beneath the facade of beautiful teenagers and you know lovely setting and nice houses that there was um a darkness that was encroaching upon everything and it really i really did notice it much more strongly after i'd left for a year and i came back after i actually left for five or six months and came back after i went to college for my first term but that was always the plan and i remember seeing so many movies that took place in new york even if they were dark as hell I wanted to go there. And I remember seeing Woody Allen's Manhattan, for example, and then that's where I'm going to be. I'm going to be in that world. I mean, now that world nauseates me, but at the time I was 14 or 15, that was the goal. And I was going to go to college back east, and then I was going to move to New York. Uh, all of my friends stayed out here. All of my friends were going to get into the film business because that's what LA is. I mean, in a certain, if you live in a certain area of LA, it is a company town, and you end up you know, working for the company, which is the entertainment complex. And that is what happened. My four closest male friends all got into the business. Really? And um, that was what I was supposed to be doing too, because um, we were all making movies and writing scripts when we were teenagers. And all of our fathers, mine accepted, were somehow involved in the industry. And that was going to be the next move. Um, And it just 
I was writing novels and I was working on Less Than Zero when I was 17, 18, 16, 17, 18. And I knew I had to get out. I don't know. It, you must have felt that to some degree uh, in order uh, to, I mean, I don't know if the escape was your choice, but the escape from LA was certainly mine. I only um, applied to colleges back East. And, um, and so, I, so I knew senior year that this was, going to be over at a certain point. And that summer of 82, I just could not wait for it to. Well, that's the thing. Through. I mean, that, that we, we were, we were living through a something that I think hasn't been understood or digested in terms of its importance. And I think that if you think about, well, it, it's being resisted yeah. because I talk about it all the time Yeah, and it's being resisted. People don't want to believe that this happened and that we were, we're okay. They want well, it to contradicts, it contradicts what I've called the gated institutional narrative, that there is this thing where the New York times is talking to the political parties is talking to the universities and they've settled on this thing. That's completely wrong. It's a narrative. It's a narrative. And the narrative has been cracking. And we have this funny thing, which I heard you uh, talking about being an anti anti Trumper where the idea is that you have Trump and the Trumpers. Yeah. Then you have the anti-Trumpers who are the people who are completely deranged by any mention of Trump, whatever he said. My partner, of, my boyfriend. Yeah, your boyfriend years, is a millennial. Yeah. He's a millennial and he has, he, he is, uh, he has had uh, Trump derangement syndrome uh, since the election. And yet, uh, Eric, he is losing that and he is just simply becoming an anti-trump well because because well no so I, I don't think that that's fair sir my belief is that if you are an anti-anti-trumper i am an anti-anti-anti-trumper that is i am okay. against trump right but mere mention of his name doesn't send me into paroxysms i don't right I'm not apoplectic with rage when he said something that's been carefully constructed to set everybody off who carries certain <laughs> behavior pattern, yes. right? And so what my belief is, is that I'm going through a very private, weird little mini hell in which I intellectually can't stand the guy, but I understand him very well. Yes. I understand why it works. I yes. predicted this in some weird way. I wrote an essay on kayfabe. I don't know if you've. I do. Yes. Yeah. That that you were one of the people who actually suggested he could win. Was that you? Yep. Well, okay. I, I just had uh, Timur Karan on the program. Yes. For preference balls. I thought everyone was lying about their feelings about Trump. It's, when they were asked about it publicly. Well, because you, you, need it, you needed to say how horrible he was if you were part of the institutional milieu, or if you needed to keep a job and make sure that you weren't on the wrong side of your clients. And what, what has been go, what I find very frustrating, I mean, you have to appreciate the mainstream has no positive interest in this show, me or anything that my group is doing whatsoever. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's not just, I mean, it's it's the fact that we have this very negative view of CNN and NPR, <laughs> not what they're supposedly standing for, right? Right. So this in this narrative, um, you know, I guess what my take on it is is that the dominant um, 
I don't even know how to say it, idealism of a time is usually a false narrative that's hiding how people can make money during that period of time. Right. right so we are right. the world right. is a portrayal of concern about Africa, the poor in Asia, what can we do right. to uplift people? But really it was a story about if we don't break our bonds to our fellow countrymen, if we don't make sure that we can not have to take care of Appalachia and the poor in the South and the downtrodden in our inner cities, um, we're not going to be able to make money. The way to make money is to move operations overseas to keep your, your, you know, your, your country um, with its headquarters, wherever it's tax advantaged. There, there was some process by which globalization was the betrayal of your countrymen. Right. And that thing was portrayed as the Davos idealism. Yeah. And the Davos idealism is cratering yeah. because it was a wealth transfer program posing as a philanthropic effort. Right. And so the reason that nobody wants the Clintons, nobody wants the Democratic Party, nobody wants the sanctimonious nonsense uh, about you know our thirst for justice and our hatred of oppression is, is that this is a search for a constituency that's large enough to get people elected who can continue to keep people making money who've been figuring out how to make money. Right. And Trump, the reason I'm anti-Trump is, is that he's taking lots of ideas that are actually originally wholesome and he's giving them this shitty kind of <laughs> mean-spirited, nasty spin. Like, for example, there's nothing wrong with restrictionism whatsoever. There's nothing xenophobic about restriction. Right. The desire to want to keep a border is not a xenophobic completely. urge. Right? I completely agree. Okay. So when he tinges it with hints, you know, he's playing around with something. He knows what the inference patterns of the left are. So he'll say something <laughs> and the left will say, oh my God, you're really saying that, you know, you think all Mexicans are rapists. And then well, the right. Whose fault is that? Pardon me? I mean, whose fault is that? I mean, that's the left's fault. From taking the bait or overreacting. No, it's not that. They, they figured out a means of keeping people in line. Mm -hmm. Whereas as you start to explore something that will stop the money-making, tr the, the, the transfer of wealth from whoever, it's like forced transfusion. Right. The institutional left, I believe, figures out how to transfuse one group uh, to supply blood to another. And what what the left is supposed to be is something, you know, more wholesome and more decent. As you start to question the transfusion, mm -hmm. you start to get this question like, surely you're not suggesting that we should close our That's borders right. to the downtrodden. That's right. And Trump is saying, yeah, I'm not scared. I'm not going to, you're not going to back me off by just saying that surely you weren't saying, you know, that's a menacing tone. And for that, many people love him that's because do you remember the scene in Reservoir Dogs of Tarantino where um, you've got, I guess, is it Steve Buscemi and I can't remember the other actor uh, where they're trying to figure out who the rat is and Mr. Blonde comes in mm -hmm. and Mr. Blonde is the psychopath who shot up the jewelry store right. and they can't figure out who they can trust. The only person you can trust is the psychopath because the psychopath isn't under control. Right. Well, Trump came through as Mr. Blonde. Mm -hmm. And the one person we know isn't under institutional control is Donald Trump because he would right. never say those things. Right. 
Okay, so now we've got a new paradigm where the only trustworthy person is the least trustworthy person. (laughs) Which Uh, I've been trying to map this out. And the problem with it is you can't wake people up because they're dying to get back to the process of making money by betraying their fellow countrymen. They, they really, the globalization thing came to an end. There's no new idea about how to make money. Right. And the pyramid schemes are collapsing. Right. So what's going to happen? Well, that's what I'm, that's why you're on the portal, sir. <laughs> um, well, look, <clears throat> getting to that, uh, getting back to what you said in terms of, uh, what, uh, I forgot the name of the book. It was about preference versus, uh, 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 public pri- private truths, public lies. Right. Um, I knew a lot of these people. I wrote about them in white. I write a section of the book is about the mood in Los Angeles uh, in the months leading up to the primaries and then to the election and then after the election. And it is a cast of my usual entitled characters, even though this is a work of nonfiction. And many of these conversations play out in the Polo Lounge or at Spago, like they do in my LA novels, with irate rich people who cannot believe that things do not go their way, which is also something that's in less than zero in Imperial Bedrooms. So even though White is a nonfiction chronicle of whatever, a a certain uh, kind of the arc of a Gen Xer, I see it. It starts out in the late 60s, early 70s with me as a child. And then I'm standing, uh, you know, with my dick in my hand in the summer of 2018 going, I can't say this. I can't express myself. This where's freedom of speech. It just, it seems to be, and I'm much more upset about it than my millennial boyfriend. Who's used to rules. He's used to all the rules that have been. This is maddening. I can't live like, I know I can't live like this either. But anyways, so I, I knew these people in Los Angeles. I knew the Obama Trump voter. I knew many of them who who were making that jump. So, and I, just sense something different by looking at everything than my millennial boyfriend did, who was already, you know, printing out his Hillary t-shirts and, you know, uh, can't, couldn't wait for the, wait, he had the Hillary last t-shirts. Season. No, he's a Bernie Metaphor. guy. Okay. He's, he's a Bernie. He was a Bernie guy, uh, Bernie Sanders guy. And he held his nose, uh, voting for Clinton, but anything but Trump because Trump drove him insane. And there was just no fucking way that Trump could, um, be, uh, elected president. So that was all going to be good. Um, but, you know, so I did know, and I, and I write about this in white, uh, people said, don't tell anybody I'm going to vote for Trump. Uh, don't tell anybody I'm voting for Trump. And, um, so, uh, I wasn't completely surprised when Trump won, but in, but what surprised me, and this ties into what you were first asking, what completely surprised me for the next two years leading up to now is how so many of my smart friends uh, became infected by Trump. Look, look, the, the most- no, 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 say more of what you mean by that. No, well, look, all of our narratives, we have been forced to deal with Trump. I talked about this in an interview that I gave with the Washington Post where uh, I- even if you don't want Trump in your life, he's in your life and you have to have an opinion about him because everyone else is talking about him. Either people loathe him to such a degree that you are sucked into the conversation. And I believe it's the same with people who love him. And I ju- I know you're, what, what was that huge exhale? What was that about? 
Okay. I, look, no, no, I, wait, wait, wait. I'm with you. I'm, right. I'm with you. I want to write an Eliza program. I, I swear I could write a small program that generates his tweets. Like, for example, before Trump, I had a simple idea, which is that if I wanted to win an, an election as a Republican, all I would have to do is to talk about the nuclear family. And every educated person would say, you mean nuclear, not nuclear. Mm -hmm. And then they'd lose. It was like an automated reaction that there was a class thing that says, correct anyone who says nuclear. Okay. Well, that's a pretty simple program. Yes, you win the correct pronunciation of the word nuclear and you lose an election because you're a dick. All right. So Trump is going to hit this thing over and over again. It's a, the left is programmed to say certain things, to defend certain things. And, you know, if you have to make the point that there is absolutely zero connection whatsoever between Islam and terror, there is no connection whatsoever. Zero. It's an illusion. Okay. Somebody can hit that, I mean, all day long, every day. When I, I remember reading an issue of Debeek put out by ISIS where their point was, I think it was called, they had an article called Why We Hate You, Why We Fight You. And they said, you've marginalized all the people in your society who point out that there is an aspect of fundamentalist jihadi Islam that just hates you because you don't believe in Allah the way we do. And because that couldn't be said. Like they, Why couldn't that be said? I mean, that's what I, there's well, the break I okay, have well, as a Gen I'll say it. There, there was, once upon a time, a heuristic that said the best way to have a multicultural society is, is that you have to have some load-bearing fictions, like all religions are equally problematic in all ways. There's no way that's true. J you know, Jains are not equally problematic as Jews. Jews are more problematic than Jains, and I'm able to say that because I'm Jewish. Of course. Okay. As a result... Those heuristics hardened into dogmas because they were necessary right. to keep our society operating. We have to believe at the moment that a jury of 12 people knows how to <laughs> convict somebody based on guilt, even though the DNA evidence shows that that's not a real rubric. Okay. Well, I mean, it's a heuristic. It's, it's, maybe, maybe it works some of the time. Right. Okay. So as these sort of heuristics have been breaking down and these heuristics of the left are on top of the ones that are necessary for civil society, they, the, the desire to maintain this complex of ideas, like trade is always good. No, trade is not always good for all people. That's, that's beyond moronic, right. right? But it's only recently that you have economists like Brad DeLong saying, Actually, it's a so you know the, the, what you're optimizing is a social Darwin uh, Darwinist uh, function, which trade is good for you based on the cube of your wealth. So the richer you are by the cube of your wealth, trade is good for you. Right. Well, Brad DeLong was also saying, and why is everybody complaining about the trade deals we inked since they helped people in Mexico? As if like American voters are going to vote to help Mexican peasants. I mean, it's great if Mexican peasants are helped, but it, I just don't see the lowest echelons of American society having as their top priority helping Mexicans with their vote. I mean, none of this makes any right. effing sense. But then why aren't they deprogramming themselves? Because I mean, if it's not going to move them forward, say, 
in the new world order. And that's the problem with Trump. Trump presented something extremely new uh, into the conversation. And the left couldn't deal with it. The media couldn't deal with it. I always felt that if they had kind of dealt with him in a neutral way and just reported what he did without all this hyperbole, I don't know if he would have won necessarily. Because all of sure. the smart, honest people had to be ejected from the institutional layer. Terrifying. But well, I know but what you're no, saying. no, no. But it, what no, I'm talking right. about is you're, you're universal right. expulsion. Yeah of people who will not go along with the gated institutional. And I, my, my theory about this, if you haven't met it, is that we grew very quickly in a very stable way that was totally anomalous post-World War II to about 1972. And every single institution that you see has an expectation of that kind of growth continuing. And so what happened is, is that all of those institutions, when they went pathological, they, they became Ponzi schemes and you needed to have a group of people in that institution who would not reveal the Ponzi scheme. And so effectively our expert class has been selected for as the people who will not blow the whistle on the fact that they're lying. Right. Right. And so you can get this at Harvard or you can get this at Stanford. Maybe the university of Chicago is something of an exception. Hollywood. Well, Hollywood is right. Exactly. Silicon Valley. And so all of these institutional things are suffering from the embedded growth obligation disease or ego, right? And so these egos have turned, like, the institutions are not interested in hearing how to beat Trump because it's easy. It's easy to beat Trump. It is. But the only problem is, is that if you beat Trump in the way that's easy to beat Trump, you will not service the people with second and third homes in the Hamptons. Right. And so those people are, are saying, well, I wasn't thinking of spending that much to beat Trump. <laughs> right. No, no, that's really. Yeah. No. That, that's what the issue is, yeah. is that right now I the exciting part is I want to retake the institutions. Do you do you really want nine conservative Supreme Court justices? If you do, if you if that's if that's what excites you, <laughs> no. I highly recommend no. talking about reparations for slavery. Why don't you tell some some sort of a child Holocaust survivor that they need to pay reparations for slavery? See how that goes. <laughs> oh, I mean, this is insane. We 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 got this some you know. It is insane. And, and self. I'm used to self-hating Jews. We've had that as an issue forever. Right. The self-hating American. Oh man, you know, just suck it up, man. You, okay, so you were born with white skin. What? what is, do, 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 do you want? It's like watching people. It's like watching a teenage girl in a cutting episode. You're not responsible for every bad thing that this country has ever done. We're not going to right all wrongs. It would be absolutely unjust to go after every past injustice. And like, are we going to get rid of the Arch of Titus in Rome because the Romans sacked Jerusalem and it commemorates? You can see they're carrying off like this giant menorah. They stole our stuff, man. All right. Let's tear down the Arch of Titus. Let's burn the Merchant of Venice. How how deep do we want to go with this madness? We're nuts. Well, uh, it needs... Well, look, I think part of why um, I'm very sensitive about this is that because I am a Gen Xer, 
Uh, I think boomers like my parents, like my mom, my stepdad. Where were your parents uh, born? Uh, my father was born in Nevada and my mother was no, born no, in Illinois. Uh, they were born in the, you know, technically not. Silent. They're silent, but, but my mom completely relates to boomers. Right, and so technically, did my dad. technically, you're the last I'm a boomer. boomer. Yes, I am. But I always. No, no, no. no I know. Dads. I yeah. know that you are. But just to, but in terms of the chart. Right, right, right. In terms of the chart. So, yes, my parents, were, my mom and my stepdad are silent, but they really are boomers. Um, but no, I don't. I'm going to disagree with you. You are? Yeah. I think that what we, we, we don't understand is that we settled on a, a narrative in which the boomers are the problem. The silent generation really begins the problem. And we are letting the silent generation off just as we are not paying attention to Gen X. And I believe, sir, that you are the last of the boomers, but that you are spiritually Gen X and that you figured out, you almost started really defining Gen X. I forget who it was who wrote the book, Gen X. You probably know. Uh, Douglas Douglas Copeland. Right. Right. I think that you, what I remember from this is that a few years either way was really important. Right. And I believe that the silence are the first generation to wrestle with the problem in 1972, 73 that the country won't wake up to, which is that our growth pattern changed for structural reasons. It wasn't about some bad decision. It wasn't about the gold standard. It wasn't about the Arab oil embargo. Something really structurally changed. Okay. And in my telling of the tale, the silence try to figure out how to restart real growth. It's like the engine has gone out. They're going to try to restart the engine. It doesn't work. The boomers look at these efforts and they say, huh, that doesn't work, but it's good enough for redistribution and to play games with fake growth. So why don't we help ourselves to fake growth? And we'll just grow our slices of the pie as if the pie were growing. And I'm sure that that must mean that somebody else's slice isn't growing, but that's really too bad for them. And so the silence start a lot of these problems. The boomers continue it. The millennials confuse the Gen Xers for boomers because to them, boomer means older than millennial. Right. (laughs) And the only generation, and this is the thing that I find fascinating, that I think really has a good hope of restarting sense making is Gen X. I agree. I completely agree with that. And I do know that whenever I attempt to do it, millennial thinking shuts you down. And so that is what I, that is what I've come up against on this last book tour I've done earlier this year. And I'm going back out on the road uh, in the fall. Uh, Millennial hysteria and overreaction to my talking about millennials in any kind of critical way. And even being somewhat sympathetic to them completely more than sympathetic brett oh completely you and i are both hanging out with tons of millennials yes and we're having some success we're having some like i don't understand this thought pattern and the millennials this is another thing that i believe and you you please correct Mm -hmm. me if i'm wrong i'm fairly disagreeable yeah i think the millennials are starving to know what actually happened and partially what i try to tell them is your the, the super ancestors, these silence and boomers who, like, I think Bill Ayers, you know, was the, the head of the weather underground mm-hmm. and he gets his job as a professor. Whereas people I know, they, they say the slightest wrong thing and they're out. Right. You're like, okay, you were a, you were a leading terrorist and you can have a job as a professor. Um, yeah. That world in which 25 year old men, you know, could 
take down a, a, a home and, and, and immediately build a second home and yeah. everything just turned to gold. It's like, well, it's not really that they were doing anything so clever. They just, they were in a stream that was moving really fast True. and you got a dry creek bed. Right. And yes, a few of you are going to do something so brilliant that you can do something against that. You know, I mean, like Ariana Grande is not hurting for money. Okay. However, the idea that you could have in the financial sense beta to a process where you could just like, I don't know, go to law school or open a dry cleaner or, you know, start some new nonprofit and you could have a perfectly fabulous life. That thing died. And the millennials have the sense of like, okay, well, this is all hopeless and maybe we're not really that good. Oh, yes. And my point is, look, man, these other guys could have three martini lunch, lunches yeah. and everything still worked out. Yeah. Um, there is this sense of, and I talk about it in in my book. I talk about all of the things I've noticed and I've marked down with living in close proximity with a millennial, a key millennial uh, for the past 10 years and uh, the things that I've noticed about him and that I've experienced. And I started to write about this, actually tweet about it quite harmlessly uh, and under the hashtag Generation Wuss because I was so surprised how offended he was, how overreactive he was, bordering, I felt on hysteric about just the normalcy of the world and the way human beings are with all of their contradictions and all of their flaws. Um, as I said earlier, uh, he, and I'm not saying that he um, uh, puts it out there, but there seemed to be, I found, a love of rules, that rules offered a kind of pathway, a narrative that wasn't there otherwise. And that all of these rules about what you can say, what you can't say, how you can express yourself, how this is sexist, how that is racist, was a way of kind of controlling a world that they felt was, had just abandoned them in a way that there was, there, there was no way to make money, that the economy was Well, this is something them. they can do to you. Which is what they are doing. Right. So it is now happening. And I see it uh, in the reaction to this book, which is critical of a lot of ways of thinking. And I think you and I are pretty much aligned on what the problems are right now. Well, do, are we? Let's, let's explore that. What do you what do you see is because I have a different take the rules thing for example maybe I'll try that and see whether you, yeah you want why don't you try that yeah okay I think people have not understood the role of uh, Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication starts off with a good idea which is that maybe there's a way in which speech that is particularly damaging has a physiological impact on us our cortisol levels spike we're going to fight or flight. There's all sorts, you know, fighting words as part of uh, our legal structure. What if we call that violence? Okay, now we have to have nonviolent communication. So then you, you have all these rules about what it is that constitutes violent versus nonviolent communication. And speech becomes violence. And then the entire concept of free speech goes out the window. Furthermore, you have an abandonment, I think. If you probably looked at the gender ratios of teachers in schools, my guess is that you'll find that it has changed quite considerably. Uh, being dominated by one gender rather than uh, a mixture of the two. And as a result, you have this sort of thing that I don't think people had really understood, which is that in part, there's a way of boys will be boys was used to disguise a lot of 
behavior, which I would have called toxic masculinity had that term not been polluted and turned into something metastatic and unusable, right? They're really, I, I went to an all boys school and man, I saw some stuff that would absolutely curl your toes. On the other hand, we're now using it uh, to mean somebody who makes the joke in the elevator, third right. floor women's lingerie. Okay, your career's over. Yeah. Like, what? That's yeah. insane. Look, my problem isn't necessarily with the things that you're talking about. Kids getting bullied, for example. No, it shouldn't be happening. It's a part of life. I look back on my life and I think, what if I hadn't been bullied? What if I had been... The Were you bullied? Um... I was. Look, just as much as anyone else I knew, any other boys I knew, yes, I was. And, um, but it, I don't know. I mean, was it traumatic? Did it help me become a writer? Did it make me want to become an artist? I certainly don't think I would have been a writer if I'd been captain of the football team or the prom king. Certainly things that happened to me that were painful helped create an artistic persona and help my voice as a writer. All of the stuff that you were talking about fine. Maybe there should be a big fix for them. I don't know. I mean, I also think that life is really hard. And basically how you toughen up is that you go through the hardships that build you into a person that can deal with life's everyday hassles and the the pain that inevitably comes to all of us. What worries me is how this affects the arts and how we um, deal with art, how we... Um, how we uh, let it into our lives. Uh, and that is the most worrying thing to me in the last five to 10 years, seeing that art must be a certain way, that there have to be rules for the art to be accepted into the community. That outlaw art, I don't know where it is anymore, certainly was a big part of uh, the world that I came of age in. And certainly it was something that I wanted to explore as the writer of Less Than Zero or the writer of American Psycho. Two books that I think because of sensitivity editors that they have now at publishing houses would never be allowed to be published in American mainstream fiction. So that lawlessness and that kind of recklessness um, uh, that great artists um, traffic in is really being minimized because it's it isn't following a set of rules. And I talk a lot in, in the book about how aesthetics don't really matter, that ideology has become the aesthetic, and that what people want is kind of an affirmation. They want a lesson. They want to learn something. And they want it to be very, very explicit. Um, ambiguity, metaphor, I really don't know if anybody traffics in that anymore in terms of, you know, uh, communicating with millennials. Um, so that is the thing that has bothered me the most. Uh, the, the other things that you're talking about, yeah, people shouldn't be in pain, but being having to include certain things in your art for it to be palatable or for you to make money or for someone to publish it or for it to be shown in as many places as possible, that is, that's a problem. And being told what you can or cannot say in something you create is also a problem. Um, the list of rules now being handed out to artists about what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. As a writer and as a, a public person who has a podcast and writes essays, you know, about entertainment and about um, the world that I'm a part of, and getting attacked is crazy. I, I, it, it is the insanity that you're talking about. I recently 
wrote a piece for Italian Vogue about the differences between fashion in 1999 when I published a large novel that took place within the fashion world called Glamorama and today. And so I thought about it. I thought, well, okay, well, they're paying quite well when no one else pays well. And I can riff on this for a couple thousand words. And so I wrote about how mysterious the fashion world was in in the late 90s and how uh, its exclusivity was what it made what it made it so alluring uh, it's um, it it's its lack of inclusion is what made people want to be a part of it so so badly compared to now where you can see the Met gala streaming online and everyone can be interacting uh, and throwing out their comments while they see in close-up the inside of the party and the dresses right as they're happening. Um, is that, I don't know, is that exciting? Is it more exciting to not know exactly what's behind the curtain? And of course, I'm writing this as a Gen Xer. I'm writing about this in a way that is really conforms to my sensibility. I also talked about how uh, the models, the women and the men, were really quite extraordinarily beautiful. And they were they were goddesses and they were gods and we looked up to them because they weren't us. They weren't us. And that's why we were so drawn to them. These women were otherworldly. These men were otherworldly. And there was something about that that I thought it, it, we don't have anymore, where we need models that look like us, that we have to be more inclusive of, you know, um, body image and that we have to accept and that and that the modeling world and the fashion world is trying its best to do that. And you can see it in shows um, where, you know, they have uh, whatever buck tooth, whatever it is. Not not people who conform to normal, uh, not even normal. No, no, no. Form of beauty, but, but, but let's be clear about it. Model bone structure is almost like a mutation. Completely, it's it, the, what we traditionally think of is something that is is extraordinarily rare. It does particular things for clothes that norm, normal humans don't. Uh, a friend of mine is a supermodel, and at some point, I said to her. Um, I never realized it, but you're really a mutant. Yeah. And her response was, yeah, I'm all legs and no torso. And her, her hands are like Ezra, Edward Scissorhand hands. Like just, just the way that Mike Michelangelo had to distort the David, somehow these people are actually distorted. I got blasted for writing this. Piece. Yeah. Absolutely blasted by millennials. Huge a huge controversy about this piece. Now, I think part of the problem was that it was translated into Italian and then someone wanted to translate it into English. So when you're translating Italian back into English, it's a whole other, can be all these other meanings. But basically the beef was, I don't believe in inclusivity in the fashion world. Well, I meant, I meant exclusivity was what made it so erotic and alluring. No, that's they they read it as I'm saying that inclusivity, I don't believe in inclusivity meaning that I'm a racist, that I uh, am a body shamer. And it was so remarkable to me that th that's the message that they got out of an older man talking about what he liked about in the late 90s about fashion that moved him to actually write a novel set in that world. Um, a complete distortion of really what I was saying based on this emotional idea of being 
excluded themselves. And it's just such a remarkable way to um, to uh, reread something so that it conforms to your view of the world. Uh, I certainly didn't have that when I read things that I didn't necessarily agree in when I was that age. Can I push back on this slightly? Yeah, please. So the way I read it is that they might have actually had a point and mm-hmm. then they missed a point. Right. So one of the costs of having fashion be mysterious, aspirational, and dare I say transcendent uh, is that it does remind us of our merely mortal nature. There was a period of, of time where, you know, you, you would show people without makeup uh, and just how completely plain and ordinary they were right there. There are all sorts of faces that lend themselves to being turned into something that cannot be as canvases on which to be painted, let's right. say. And that there is something powerful about um, deconstructing fashion. If I, if you remember some, one, one I bring up sometimes is Jennifer Lopez's famous Versace dress. Yeah. Um, I am sure that adhesive is somehow lurking in the background. But the idea of having adhesive on your boobs and, and having the fabric somehow stick, you know, all sorts of contrivances, that's much less exciting and alluring if I know how the magic trick is done. So the idea of a magic show in which the audience demands to know how every trick is done is a very weird thing because some of us want to be fooled. We want to be seduced, but we also are shamed in this process because of our own very plain nature. One of the things that I have to deal with is, is that I have moles all over my face and some, some percentage of every YouTube video that I've ever done comments. And you think the guy would have some money and he'd have the moles removed. Why is that guy wearing a wig? Right. You know, that's clearly a weave. Nobody, nobody his age has hair like that, you know, whatever. And the shaming is incredibly powerful. On the other hand, the transcendence is incredibly powerful. And the number of people who can see both of these things, which is, yeah, they have a point and they're also creating a huge negative externality and cost that they're not taking into account. We are in some sense, in some sort of awkward waking up that there, there has been a very dark side to fashion, to the models, to the way in which we eroticize children. Very often these women are recognized when they're 12, when they're yes. 14. Um, and we have been complicit as a society in the you know eroticization of children for a great deal of time. So what, what astounds me is not that they push back, but that the quality of the pushback is so shitty. Well, it, it's, it's just uh, a reflection of their way of thinking. It is pure ideology. I don't sense someone – I mean, look, writing anything is kind of, you know, uh, I don't want to say an act of magic or an act of willing disbelief in terms of you're, – you're creating something out of nothing. And I'm creating this idea about my memories of uh, – the nineties and what I was attracted to about fashion and contrasting it negatively to what I feel fashion is now where I just, it's not as interesting um, because it's uh, I guess more uh, 
inclusive in terms of letting you see the strings and everything. But letting you see the strings and letting you see how everything is made is really endemic to this culture now. It's it's in every Wikipedia page. It's in connecting all the Marvel movies and all the backstories to all the characters. This generation, that's, there is no mystery in terms of that. They don't want mystery. I think mystery frightens them and makes them feel whatever, unsafe. Ambiguity makes them feel unsafe and it confuses them. Um, So I don't know. Is it really shitty, the thinking is shitty? I guess it is to a degree. It also is overly reactive to me. And and of course it is because the minute something is posted, you want to get your voice out there. So you post something 20 minutes. Well, that's true. But like I would say that, for example, I always ask this question. Do people want to be seduced? If you if you believe that you don't want to be manipulated, you'll never have the experience of being seduced because seduction is in some sense a willing manipulation, usually on two people's parts, right? And so when, when Jennifer Lopez was trying to seduce the world at scale with this dress that miraculously stayed on her body, we wanted to be in the audience. And I'm sure, you know, one of the th- beliefs I've had about gay men is that in some sense, very often gay men are like magicians, assistants, or or consultants. They very often take great pleasure in seeing how the trick is done um, without wanting to be completely, like the heterosexual men are just sitting there in the audience lapping it up. Right. And the gay men are like, oh, you know, did you see her makeup? It was fabulous. Like they're actually thinking about the construction, the craft. You know, there's sort of a different eye. Out, an outsider eye. Yeah, a bit of an outsider outside, because yeah. you're not being carried away. Like women also will say, oh, did you see, I love the way she, she you know, she wears her false eyelashes. Right. Like, whereas men are like, if they're heterosexual, they're sort of believing the whole thing. Right. I can't imagine living in a world where I didn't want to be seduced daily. Right. That's what I want to be. I want to be seduced all day long. I want to be seduced by every book I pick up. I want to be seduced by, why else would I drive to a theater? Why else would I drive to the Arclight, pay a ticket, and sit in a dark, empty room? Unless I want to be seduced. I want to be seduced by my coffee. I want to be seduced by everything. And I do think there's a pushback on that because giving into seduction is being out of control. It is being and, out of control. And it, but that's the pleasure. Well, but you, I think you made this point before. It has to do with this crazy loss of trust. And in a world characterized by loss of trust, I do understand the desire to worry about, well, you weren't careful and you are shaming and you're having a negative effect over here, right? Whereas in a world of higher trust, people say, you know, like in Silicon Valley, the concept of pitching, people say, pitch me, mm-hmm. you know, because the, the VCs who have the money are used to being seduced, you know, like, oh, your, your pitch was ins- insufficiently manipulative and insufficiently seductive. You're going to have a harder time with your company if that's how you do things. Let me show you how to be, uh, how to orient things so that you're more likely to succeed because that way I'm more likely to make money with my investment. I think that there, there's some aspect where this desire for radical transparency has to do with people who, who feel very cut out of society. I think it has to do with, because people don't read anymore. <laughs> I think it has to do with people don't read fiction anymore. I think it has to do with a kind of strange lack of empathy, even when everyone says, 
you know, warm, fuzzy things to each other, uh, which to me increasingly is just virtue signaling and acting out, you know, feeling your virtuous and being virtuous, as I write in the book, are two very different things. I think it's I think it really is down to people don't read anymore and that someone can find more meaning in uh, Cuphead, which is the giant new video game that all the kids are playing and that they'll never be reading. They'll never know the mysteries of H.P. Lovecraft or whatever. I do think that something has been severely minimized in terms of experience and in terms of a breadth of experience. And I don't care if I sound old. I've always sounded old. I sounded old when I wrote Lesson Zero. I mean, I was an old man at five. But you said degree. that you wouldn't choose novels again. I wouldn't. I absolutely would not. What would you choose in a world? That- uh, a web series, uh, a TV show, a miniseries. I, I choose it. I, I do think they've replaced it. I think uh, adult literary fiction has slid down. Uh, we've lost about 13% of the readers since 2013. That is a lot. That is a, that's bad business. And that's, that's over a loss of a billion dollars in sales. That is suggestive of something. And I also don't meet anybody anymore who reads serious adult fiction. Serious meaning quasi-literary to literary adult fiction. I'm not talking about, you know, obscure writers that are only taught in academia. But um, it is something that um, I don't know. I am of I, I really do believe that reading that kind of long form fiction encourages empathy and encourages you to step into other people's shoes and to see the world from three or four or eight different angles rather than your own. Well, but and I, it just it, the, that, that, that to me is the purest example of getting that experience more than theater, more than listening to a record, more than going to a movie, because it is not a passive experience. It is an active experience of actually putting yourself in the shoes of the character and seeing the world through the way that they look at it. And it's just that you can't get that in any other kind of medium. And if that's going, um, I I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, what's, What's replacing that? Well, I, think- I, I don't know that there is. And that's one of the things I wanted to get to, which is if we are, in fact, losing the capacity, as I've said, for uh, semi-reliable communal sense making, that we can't make sense of the incoming information in any way where we can communally kind of agree on, well, what just happened and what should we be thinking about, about how to, how to, how to, approach, how to approach that? If we don't have a canon where I can reference a line or two, uh, you know, to get at a really complicated thought. In my own tradition, we've lost canned humor where a lot of like, let's say Talmudic teachings were contained mm-hmm. in a joke and you would just use the punchline. Nobody told the joke once everybody knew it. You just used the punchline to say, well, that's a super subtle principle, you know, mm-hmm. like, well, in terms of referencing one line, the idea is thou dost protest too much methinks is a complicated concept. I don't want to have to explain it from scratch, but if I can point out that somebody is falling over, you know, Alan Dershowitz seems to be protesting too much at the moment. Right. And I don't want to have to say more. Right. Um, If we don't have common literature, common canon, if we don't have the time to sort of take a more Straussian view, which is what is the, what is the writer really trying to, to say that can't be said in the open, if we believe that transparency is always the answer and that sunlight is always the best disinfectant. Is there any way of waking up into a different era so that this thing that is uh, suffusing our culture um, doesn't take the whole enterprise down? 
Sometimes I think I'm old. Sometimes, and I am, I am old. And I think that this is the natural state of things and that we are just moving forward on this trajectory and that bit by bit you kind of get, um, you can fight, I suppose, in a natural way to try to stay on that trajectory, but it's moving along and, uh, you know, that golden world that surrounded you is moving on to younger people and to sexier people and to more vibrant people. And I, I think sometimes, and I, I, and I don't believe this is true about reading. I sometimes think that, Oh, this is what it means to become somewhat obsolete in terms of a pop culture world uh, in terms of being a member of the pop culture world. And it, and it just goes this way and people are left behind. I think a lot about why, um, the Quentin Tarantino movie uh, struck a chord among so many middle-aged men I know is because it's really an exploration of that, of being, you know. Um, so all of this is a roundabout way of saying that maybe people are figuring out and the trajectory that we're on is the one that they want to be on. But I just don't know if it – I don't know if it is and I don't know if um, – I, look, I don't think we're ever going back to read. I agree long with that. I, I don't know that I want to go back to the previous world. Yeah, no, I don't think I do either. And I am. I just, I just wish it to a degree, and I think it's, it's as with you, that, um, that I guess a little bit more empathy, critical thought, and that this notion that you can see two things in. Um, in a sentence or in an opinion, uh, you know, the, the Fitzgerald's famous dictum about the only smart people are the ones that can really see both the beauty and the horror in a rose. And if you if you you need to be able to see both to be an artist or to be a person in the world, uh, if you just see one or the other, whatever. Um, and, and I don't see that uh, anymore. And it is. um that's what I miss. I mean, I don't really want to necessarily go back. The look, watching, I don't know, watching uh, the Quentin Tarantino movie, I mean, I wouldn't, I don't know if I wouldn't mind going back here to Hollywood in 1969, just in terms of a, on a certain kind of fetishistic level in terms of clothes and decor and music. Well, I mean, I, th I think that there is a golden age of, of Hollywood. I think that one of the things we're missing is we developed this idea of critical thinking, and it turned out that... There was a parallel theory that never got developed, which I've called critical feeling, which is how do you get your feeling to be responsive and adaptive uh, as opposed to reflexive and kind of a, right. And that the, the group feel is this very weird thing that yes. the millennials are traveling. My theory about this, I don't know whether you'll bite mm -hmm. on this or think it's silly is that maybe generation X uh, are the so-called magic Negroes to, um, the millennials, mm -hmm. the millennials are a larger cohort. Maybe they're going to mean more, you know, nobody from the 1930s who, who was born in the 1930s ever became president of the United States. Maybe the idea is that Gen X has a different role and that the millennials uh, are hungry to be inducted by something older, something more established yeah. to be recognized. The boomers are weirdly not going to do it. The silence are almost spent. Yeah. 
And I wonder whether our problem is that we we're angry. Like, I don't think generation wuss really works mm-hmm. because what it does is it sets us up oppositionally. We're taking their nonsensical energy, which right. by the way is completely maddening. And I think it's very strange that I grew up in a very threatening world, real yeah. physical, physical oh, yeah, risk. Yeah, yeah. And I'm more worried about Twitter than I ever was in the world where people were wrapping their cars around telephone poles or ending up ODing in, in the Cedars uh, ER. Mm-hmm. Something about this world is weirdly dangerous because there are no normal rules. It doesn't know when to stop. It's willing to take away your ability to earn, to destroy your reputation, to move your private life into the public sphere. And it doesn't seem to have any empathy. I wonder if the real trick, and this is like the hardest thing to even imagine, is to realize that these are damaged kids and now damaged adults and that our grit is supposed to serve them. Maybe we're supposed to lose twice, lose once to the baby boomers and the silence. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to lose again, but we are supposed to take up our place, helping them become a better version of themselves. I think most of my audience is millennial. I, be- I bet yours is too. A great deal of it is millennial. Uh, and uh, I talk about... Uh, the demise of a lot of things. Uh, I talk about the demise of reading. I thought I talk about the demise of American cinema, which you would think would not be interesting to them at all, but um, they're there. Uh, and certainly, I have a large millennial following, despite how often millennials attacked me this past spring with the publication of the book. Uh, they were definitely there at the readings. They were definitely there at the signings. And a lot of them were there when I gave a talk at the Peter Thiel, Thiel Foundation about a month ago. Um, so there is that audience. And I agree with you on a certain level. I do think they want to learn and they do want guidance. I think they're hungry for it to a degree. Um, but they are overly sensitive about how people um, see them. Mm. And that is a very interesting uh, and I think a new thing in terms of shame, because the, the, the guiding principle or one of the strongest um, uh, signifiers in the millennials I know is shame. Shame is a huge motivating factor to be shamed. And um, that is something that I, I don't know, I can't relate to. And I don't think Gen X can really relate to that as much either. It's not as, it was never as powerful a motivating well, factor I think we in terms of how you express yourself, in terms of being online, in terms of how people talk about it was you, a bigger message deal boards. For us. I think that what we don't understand is, is that we're not, this is another theory, feel free to shoot it down. I've watched the very strange interactions between millennials from a perspective of a Gen Xer. What they'll often say is, that was a little rapey. Yeah. And, if you use the word rape to a Gen Xer, it's like, boom, you've just dropped a bomb. But like rapey, like I would never use the word rapey. Right. And, but and, then, like, and then another one of them will say, yeah, you're right. It was a little bit rapey. And then they go on. And so the idea is that they're trading, they're, they have an agreement, which is like, it's normal for people to say things that are kind of rapey and racist and kind of, kind of like, you're starting to go into dangerous territory. Just I'm signaling to you. You probably don't want to go there. And they're like, thank you very much. I didn't want to go there. And then they all go on their merry way. Very often what we do is say, what did you say? Like we're back on our heels because we're not part of this agreement. 
Right. And we have an idea of like, there was nothing wrong with what I said. Don't you dare talk to me that way. Or no, no, no. I absolutely didn't mean it. I promise you. I promise you. So we don't understand that it's relative to an agreement that we're not part of to warn each other to back off and give a quick apology and then keep moving on. And I don't even agree with it. Like from their perspective, if I'm showing them a George Carlin routine mm-hmm. and they say, that was a little racist. Mm-hmm. Um, we're now at a weird impasse where if I continue to say, I think that rut- routine is actually quite important and you really need to look at it and pay attention and try to figure out what he's saying. Now we've escalated. Wow. You, did, you I, I gave you your warning shot and you declined it. Now I'm going to have to call you out as really a bad person. And now I'm going to have to potentially use my high leverage position as a reporter for a, a famous newspaper to actually ruin your life. Like we don't understand that that's not what they're hoping for. They're hoping for the sort of, Oh yeah, you know, what was I thinking? I, I, I would never want to, Point to somebody to that George Carlin routine. The ambiguity of irony. <laughs> that's missing. Sure. The ambiguity of irony. And ironic I, irony and being ironic was, you know, a key, a key part of our generation. Um, and it was a way we expressed ourselves. And it's a way that we dealt with things. A lot of it in our in our novels, in the music that we listened to. Um, very rarely was music this declaration of myself and how I'm feeling, um, <clears throat> at least as a Gen Xer growing up in the late 70s and into the 80s. Um, but that lack of irony rips, up, uh, takes away shading and takes away a humanity um, because nothing is exactly as it seems. And if you want to look at the world in that way, and then every little um, thing that you don't like becomes racist or rapey, and you're not able to place it within a context and take in the totality of it and look at it from three or four different angles, and you're, it's just pure reaction to, um, I don't know, a litany of rules that you've been told you have to follow, I'm not doing it. I mean, I'm just not on, and I don't apologize to them and I don't say anything. No, but, but, but I just don't say anything. If people, I mean, I didn't, I've never written an apology to anybody and I've never defended myself to any of these people either because the arguments just isn't worth responding to on a certain level. You've, you've taken, you've, you've deconstructed it to a degree where there's an ounce or so of sympathy, but well, I also part- think that they should know better. I think I'm giving people way too much credit for just pulling up their pants and understanding what it means to be an adult and that you... Well, I mean, you know, but I'm, I'm trying to get them to entertain the idea that, for example, if you chase injustice with greater injustice, you have not gotten rid of injustice. You have a problem of the old lady who swallowed a fly, right? I'm trying to figure out how to get through to their minds what I see. Now, maybe there are ways in which I'm wrong. I'm open to that. But I'm not open to the idea that suddenly every everything has been wrong and that one generation has suddenly figured it out. I have to say something, Eric. Please. As we I realize that I don't really care. Yeah. I really don't care what millennials think about me. And I really don't know if I care what I think about them. 
The overreaction to the hashtag Generation Wuss, which I yeah. thought was a perfect example of a kind of snarky Gen X way of looking at millennials, was intended as comedy. And it was intended as something to talk no, about. I mean, I understand exactly. Feed. I got a little chuckle out of but, it. Well, right. But still, to, to and then when I did take it a bit serious, more seriously and expounded on it in my book um, and realized that I was sympathetic as well as annoyed, right. um, I just... I don't know. I think that the reaction to that was endemic uh, of, of, you know, millennial thinking and that it is, um, I don't know, it's problematic. Uh, and, but I also realize I've got other things no, to worry about. That's fine. But what I'm worried about is we've got a generation that is now going to probably use its high leverage positions to Absolutely. derange a lot. Yeah. And, and cancel us. And well, canceling, you know, some of us can afford. What, yeah. what worries me is I see this as eroding the outer layers of our civil society. They're about to get to core structure yeah. and it's going to keep going. And I don't think it's cute. I think, no, I think it is absolutely capable of getting us into war of i think course. it's capable of getting us a president that would be dictatorial as a, as an overreaction to their nonsense yeah so i don't think nothing is riding on it. i think a lot is riding on it and i have two contradictory impulses one is to say what is it that you're actually trying to say maybe we can work to try to understand you better and the other one is cut that shit out no yeah, of course right and so i i don't have the indifference i think that you do i think what i have is i have two contradictory impulses one of which is to say i bet you're saying something and i'm just not getting it and the other is you're wildly out of control and you need to see a different path of course boomer youth millennial youth gen x youth i know which one that i am probably uh uh most uh, impressed by on a certain level in terms of, and I'm shocked in terms of a kind of level of clear-headed, I don't want to say adulthood, but just a a way of dealing with the world that is wildly different from millennial and boomer. And I think it's interesting that you think that there could be a moment where Gen X might step up to the stage and announce itself forcefully in a way that perhaps we have. We're doing it so now. Far. I mean, you and I. I think, I, I so think too. You and I, we're modeling a conversation which we have a couple of dif- disagreements. Yeah, I think it's polite. Both of us uh, are capable of taking our, our sabers out of their sheaths, but there's usually no reason to. No, and I don't. Never. And, and and what I do find is is that I just think what I was hoping to do here a little bit is to talk about this context and this firmament, which I think has been invisible, that we have a boomer millennial story. There's a very important role of Gen X that has been ignored. Your, your, your work, I think, has been probably the best example of it, to be honest. I find it almost impossible to read because it's so, it's so right. And that what, what we do next is we have to think about the long-term longevity of our society. I'm very worried, for example, that some of these millennial females need to start families even though they're pretending that they, it doesn't really matter one way or the other whether they have uh, families or not. I think it's going to be incredibly destructive if we don't have people invested in the longevity of our society through somewhat normal structures. Now, I could be wrong in that. Maybe the idea is, is that a family is an outmoded concept and that people don't need this to be fulfilled. But I do think that if we don't actually have adults in the room 
And if we don't become those adults and strong and caring above, you know, just the way you're dealing with a bratty child, we're, we're too cowed by these bratty children. We actually have to say, hey, I'm really sorry, but you, you have to stop throwing a temper tantrum. And if you have to go to your room, go to your room. But you're out of control. We can't have the New York Times becoming the agent of uh, like individual destruction uh, as it destroys the reputations of people who fall out of line of the orthodoxy. That, that thing is a threat to our society writ large. Anyway... I don't know whether you agree or disagree. On that note, all right. I think I I completely agree. Well, I Brett, completely agree. It's been fantastic having you here. And uh, you've been through the portal with Brett Easton Ellis. Uh, I hope for those of you who are listening on Apple or Spotify, uh, you'll subscribe to the program. And uh, hopefully we'll be putting it out on YouTube as well. So make sure to subscribe to our channel. And we'll see you next time. Thanks very much. Thanks very much.